0: Molecular Minute podcast, the healthcare podcast focusing on precision oncology, molecular profiling, and how both are heavily integrated in taking care of patients and in advancing therapeutics for cancer care, as well as improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Caris Life Sciences. Every so often, I'm going to host either internal or external thought leaders in precision oncology, in molecular profiling, and in how we really address these important platforms as we take care of patients with cancer. We are going to have various topics, and I welcome your input, your suggestions. And your ideas about the topics that we are going to tackle. Some of these topics are going to discuss recent research presentations and papers focusing on precision oncology and molecular profiling. Other topics will talk about technology and how we are improving on the way we sequence tumors in a way that we are getting the proper information that hopefully are going to transform the care of patients with cancer. The topics will vary, but the underpinning of this podcast is to share with you, our listeners, new information about genomic profiling, molecular profiling, precision oncology, and the impact of all of this on cancer care. I thank you for taking the time to be part of this podcast. I welcome your input and your suggestions. You can email me at cnabhan at karisls.com and send me any suggestions or ideas regarding future episodes. I hope you enjoy a few minutes with us every so often talking about something really important in healthcare and is transforming the way we care for patients. Welcome to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. So it's really such a pleasure for me to host uh, a colleague of mine now, Dr. David Spetzler, who I've had the uh, privilege of meeting and uh, several months ago, and I'm now working with him, but I really wanted to feature him on our inaugural KERIS Precision Oncology podcast to talk a little bit about his personal journey, a little bit about the science currently and what the future holds for uh, technology that we are doing here as well as elsewhere. David, welcome to our first podcast. I appreciate you taking time. I know it's a little bit crazy nowadays for folks who may be listening to you for the first time and just don't know a lot about you, maybe a little bit about yourself, and how did you end up at CARES? You've been here for about 10 years. How did this happen? Sure. So I had my first lab job when I was 14 years old,
1: uh, working in a neurobiology lab in the basement of St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, and so I've been in it and around science my entire life. I was on the path more pointed towards Uh, mathematics and computer science initially. But then my first child was born with a severe genetic deletion uh, that led to profound special needs. Uh, And that that changed my course uh, dramatically. And so I started working more on molecular cellular biology and uh, really developed a, a passion to try to understand genetics at a level that would allow us to intervene and improve how we are able to, to treat people uh, that are suffering from uh, genetic-borne illnesses. Um, after graduating uh, Arizona State University for the third time, um, I was looking for a job, and uh, there was an entry-level bioinformatics position available at Caris. So I I applied and, and got that job. I was an entry-level scientist uh, and just had the, the right skill set and was in the right place at the right time to uh, start to make meaningful contributions. And so I rose up uh, through the ranks to become now the, the president and the chief scientific officer.
0: So David, what does a president and chief scientific officer do day in and day out? How do you spend your day? What, what Take us through... Like, you know, what do you do when you're, when you're at work? Sure.
1: So I guess my day gets divided up into a few different areas of activities. Uh, one is engaging with, with customers and you know, teaching them about the science and about our, our products and uh, about how to think about molecular profiling. Another is... Trying to drive the science forward, uh, evaluating the data that's being generated by our experiments, designing new experiments, figuring out what's working, what can be done better, what can be done differently. That's what I enjoy most, uh, actually. And then the third part, kind of the administrative part that's... Uh, that's the boring stuff. Yeah, that's, that's what they pay me to do. They get the science <laughs> free. Uh, all my stuff is, is uh,
0: what I charge them for. You know, we hear the term precision oncology a lot. To David Spetzler, what does precision oncology mean and how does this really shape how you've worked on the scientific platform at Keras over the past several years?
1: Precision oncology, I think to me,
0: in the end of the day, means
1: generation of meaningful information that allows a physician to make an informed decision about which drug to give or which drug not to give. Um, at the end of the day, it has to to be defined by how it modifies the intervention for that particular patient. And so um, we're at the very beginning of this journey. I mean, there are quite a few drugs out there that now we know uh, to give or not to give based upon uh, particular underlying molecular information. Uh, But there's vast gaps in our knowledge base. And that's what we need to to shore up. And I think eventually, um, we will see Uh, a movement towards a a level of personalized therapy that is beyond what happens today. And and you can see that a little bit with some of the CAR T-cell technology that um, is emerging. And we'll move even well beyond that uh, to truly personalized therapeutics, I
0: believe. It's decades out, uh, but uh, that's where we're headed. Rumor has it that David Spetzler is a big fan of RNA. Like you, you, you love the RNA, and you've worked tirelessly to get the whole transcriptome technology and recently the whole exome. Talk to listeners a little bit why RNA is, is at least in your view, very important, and how did this lead to the whole transcriptome and whole exome that we currently have?
1: Yeah, I, I do love RNA. Uh, I, I love protein even more, and it all comes from the central dogma of molecular biology, which is RNA, which encodes for protein. And so um, it's it's understanding what is actually happening within the molecular system that we're studying. So uh, with DNA, you've got 3.3 or so billion bases and you've got 33 million of them that are protein coding uh, inevitably. Just by reading the DNA, you don't know what's turned on, what's turned off, what downstream regulatory processes are influencing the particular RNA transcript that's being created or the particular protein isoform. and there are increasing orders of magnitude levels of complexity as you go from the DNA to the protein. So, you know, we go from about 22,000 genes to more than 200,000 unique RNA transcripts to to more than 2 million protein isoforms. And so the reason I like RNA uh, so much is because it moves us closer to that true end state that we're trying to study. If we had the technology to measure all the proteins, I'd like that even more. You know, it's, it's better to study the house you're trying to fix uh, by being in the house rather than uh, you know, trying to fix the house by studying the architectural blueprints. Um, not that the blueprints can't be meaningful, uh, they are and DNA is useful, uh, but RNA gets us one big step closer to the truth.
0: When we talk about whole transcriptome, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. So I'm a clinician. I did not really get trained in the molecular stuff that that you're familiar with in the lab and all of that. And and I can speak for a lot of my clinician colleagues that we get a little bit intimidated when we hear a lot of these uh, terms. What should clinicians know about whole transcriptome sequencing, whole exome sequencing? that allows them to explain it to patients as they're trying to order these tests? So the
1: exome is just a a comprehensive test to look for what is already clinically meaningful and and actionable. And so it's got those core sets of genes that everyone should be tested with where it's relatively straightforward as to what to do and uh, to interpret. It's still true that many, many, many patients, the vast majority of patients, aren't even getting that level of care today uh, but it, it shouldn't really increase the level of intimidation. So having a, a small panel of 50, 60 genes uh, or a medium panel of 500 or, or a large panel of 22,000 shouldn't change the interpretation uh, or conversation with the patient very much. The reason to go big to have all the others is because we don't want to just um, take this opportunity to, to better care for the patient in front of us. We also want to increase the world's knowledge base so that we can improve cancer care for everyone in the future as well. So that's a big part of why it uh, is worthwhile to go to larger panels, but we don't want to confuse patients or create unnecessary hardship on physicians in terms of trying to explain additional complexity that isn't really necessary at this point. Those core genes would be like EGFR and and lung cancer or or BRCA or KRES. As you start to move into, into RNA, um, the story does get more uh, complex a little bit, but we can do a better job of, of keeping it simple. And so uh, there are a couple aspects of, of RNA that are just relatively easy to, to point to. So the way to think about RNA is, is again, we can focus in on non-small cell lung cancer. Every single patient uh, should be tested for ALK translocations and ROS1 translocations. And you know you can argue about RET and, and MET, uh, Certainly, NTRAC, uh, all of those fusion based translocation alterations um, are much, much better to be detected by RNA than the DNA. It's the nature of the technology, it's the nature of the molecule. Uh, it's just a more efficient um, and more accurate way to, to test for fusions uh, by going to RNA rather than DNA. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter. As long as the physicians can rely on the information that they're getting, they don't need to have a, a super deep understanding of, of the technology. So, you know, and, and they don't today in many cases. Like, it's very rare that people ask, what's the difference between a FISH test and a SISH test? They don't need to know. It's it's irrelevant. They know that they can trust both uh, versions of uh, in situ hybridization, uh, that the piece of information coming out of that is telling us uh, about a copy number alteration or talking about a translocation. Uh, and that, that is sufficient. So they understand what to do with the data, which is far more important and relevant uh, than knowing exactly the nature of how the data was generated.
0: And maybe, maybe one way, I mean, as I'm listening to you, David, I'm thinking, doing the RNA testing, I may detect certain fusion genes that I may have missed with the DNA. I mean, I don't know, maybe, is that a simplified way of looking at it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Before I let you go, if I have you back in six months and we're talking about this, what what should we expect from uh, technology? Where do you want to see things in six months? This is we're talking short term, not not two years, just before the end of the year. What what should we expect?
1: So, what we're most actively engaged on is our liquid biopsy technology. It's really a unique uh, approach to solving the problem, and I'm I'm very excited about it. And so. The way that we're doing it is different uh, than than everybody else, as is most commonly done at at Keras. We're trying to advance the science and uh, do things in a way that make the technology much, much better. And so we're running our whole exome assay uh, on the blood, but we're not just running it against DNA. Uh, We're doing a total nucleic acid extraction. And so we're getting all of the cell-free DNA. We're getting all the cell-free RNA. We're combining them together Uh, and that gives us a lot more nucleic acid to work with. Uh, so one of the greatest limitations of cell-free DNA, uh, today is, is a biological limitation where about 40% of late stage cancer patients don't have sufficient amounts of cell-free DNA to even extract enough to run the assay. And that's, that's a really big percentage with the approach that we're taking. Uh, So far, we've achieved sufficient levels of material in 100% of cases, not just stage four, but also early stage in patients without cancer. This new approach gives us the ability to get that information uh, across a wide, wide uh, range of patients. Um, And that's going to enable us to not only detect those uh, mutations that are important for therapy selection, Uh, but also begin to give us the underlying information that we need for early detection, for minimal residual disease, for monitoring. Uh, It's really an amazing uh, approach and uh, assay. And again, it's the whole exome panel that we're running. So we're not talking about measuring 70 genes or a couple hundred genes. Uh, We're measuring all 22,000 genes.
0: That's amazing. we Will make it much easier, I would presume, for patients not to have the tissue biopsies when it's uh, when they have uh, if they have a difficult to access lesion or something like that. Exactly, David. Thank you so much. Appreciate your your time on our inaugural podcast. You know, I'm going to have you again. You know, because we have to keep uh, we have to make sure we know what uh, what's happening. But I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it too. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, the Karis Molecular Minute. I hope to hear your feedback, your input, your suggestions. And until next time, take care of yourselves. And thank you for listening.